You are listening to your home for Michigan Athletics, 88.3 WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Locate us on the web at WCBN.org. 15 seconds remain. Hunwick has it. Forward to Tambellini. Tambellini, he'll shoot. Save there, and the rebound comes to Hunwick. Six seconds remain. Tambellini shoots and scores. It comes around to Jeff Tambellini at the near side circle with 5.3 seconds remaining. Tambellini gives the Wolverines a 6-5 lead. Your radio is on. It's on 88.3 FM. WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor's 24-hour open-minded radio surprise pudding. Licensed to the regents of the University of Michigan. Operated by students at the University of Michigan. Uniquely maintained as a healthy alternative and a positive influence on the mental health of the Ann Arbor community. You are here. Good evening and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. And I'm Jim DeWire. And I've been away for a couple weeks. Kind of interesting in uh, New York City, uh, listening to all of the coverage about the Kennedy assassination and the 50th anniversary. I just wanted to read a brief uh, essay that appears in uh, I.F. Stone's In Time of Torment. Uh, I.F. Stone, very interesting journalist, also known as Izzy. He uh, basically became kind of an independent, kind of one of the first journalists that developed a newsletter. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, his observations about the uh, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s are are, uh, timeless, I think. All available uh, in a series of... uh books yeah um, that cover these uh, eras his book on the korean war is uh, probably one of the best yet i mean ever written about the korean war yeah i think that's called the hidden history yeah hidden history of the korean war yeah uh this book uh, in time of torment is essentially about essays that he wrote during the 60s um and it's very interesting to read his essay following the assassination of John F. Kennedy that he wrote on the 9th of December, 1963, <clears throat> while the Warren Commission was botching the investigation for a variety of reasons. By the way, that coverage, I, I didn't have a television, so I, I didn't watch any TV regarding it, but I did hear a lot of the radio uh, coverage and... Uh, I thought by far the best thing, I single thing I heard was a uh, actual uh, fresh air interview on the day, the anniversary of the assassination. So that would have be, be the uh, 22nd of November 2013. You may want to go back and archive this uh, particular show. 
half the show is devoted to Robert Dalek, who is, I think, our preeminent presidential historian uh, of, of this era, an outstanding uh, historian that appears frequently on uh, public television and uh, other TV shows. Uh, he's written a variety of books. Uh, ironically, I think one of his best books is actually his analysis of Franklin Roosevelt's foreign policy, his first book that uh, basically probably was an expanded Ph.D. thesis. Mm -hmm. But he moved on to other presidents and is, has a new book out about John F. Kennedy. And I think it was an interesting uh, presentation of how Kennedy grew on the job how uh, 1961, 1962, and 1963 were very distinct years in Kennedy's thousand days. That's the sort of magic number attributed to his presidency. And I think that this essay by, uh, I'm going to read a couple of brief paragraphs from it, from uh, I.F. Stone, has a kind of an interesting analogy uh, to some of the problems that Barack Obama has. The title of this essay is, We All Had a Finger on the Trigger. He says there was a fairy tale quality about the inaugural and there was a fairy tale quality about the funeral. One half expected that some lovely princess knelt to kiss the casket for the last time. Some winged godmother would wave her wand and restore the hero whole again in a final, final triumph over the dark forces which had slain him. There never was such a pageant of a presidency before. We watched it as children do raptly determined, determined to believe, knowing all the time that it really wasn't true. Of all the presidents, this was the first to be Prince Charming. To watch the president at a press conference or at a private press briefing was to be delighted by his wit, his intelligence, his capacity, and his youth. These made the terrible flash from Dallas incredible and painful. But perhaps the truth is, that in some ways John Fitzgerald Kennedy died just in time. He died in time to be remembered as he would like to be remembered, as ever young, still victorious, struck down undefeated, with almost all the potentates and rulers of mankind, friend and foe, come to mourn at his beer. In Congress, the president was faced with something more than a filibuster. He starts talking about the civil rights legislation here. He was confronted with a shrewdly conceived and quietly staged sit-down strike by Southern Committee chairman to determine uh, uh, to block civil rights, even if it meant stopping the wheels of government altogether. The measure of their success is that we entered this final month of 1963 with nine of the 13 basic appropriations bills as yet unpassed though the fiscal year for which they were written began last July 1st. In foreign policy, the outlook was also unpromising. The president recognized the dangers of an unlimited arms race and the need for a modus vivendi of if humanity was to survive but was afraid. Even when the Sino-Soviet break offered the opportunity to move forward at a snail's pace towards an agreement with Moscow, the word was that there could be no follow-up on the nuclear test ban pact, at least not until after the next election. Even so, 
a minor step as a commercial airline agreement with the Soviets was in abeyance. The quarrel with Argentina over oil concessions lit up the dilemma of the Alliance for Progress. However much the president might speak of encouraging diversity, when it came to a showdown, Congress and the moneyed interests of our society insisted on free enterprise. He says, how many Americans, he says, let's ask ourselves honest questions. How many Americans have not assumed with approval that the CIA was probably trying to find a way to assassinate Castro? That is an interesting observation uh, being made on in December of 1963, uh, since the assassination uh, programs against Castro were largely secret. But this is an indication of how success, successful that I.F. Stone was at finding out these secrets uh, of the government. How many applauded when Lumumba was killed in the Congo? How many would not applaud if the CIA had succeeded killing Castro because they assumed he was dangerously neutralist or perhaps pro-communist. In the sense, we all share the guilt with Oswald and Ruby and the rightist crackpots where the right to kill is so universal, universally accepted. We should not be surprised if our young president was slain. It's not just the ease of obtaining guns this is more urgently in need of an examination of who pulled the trigger. In this sense, as in the multilateral nuclear monstrosity we are trying to sell to Europe, we all had the finger on the trigger. And, of course, the Rolling Stones. I was going to say the famous <laughs> line in uh, Rolling Stones, sympathy for the devil. Yeah. Who killed the Kennedys? So I think this is an amazing essay um, written uh, just a couple of weeks after John F. Kennedy was assassinated under circumstances that have not yet been uh, explained. I mentioned that Fresh Air uh, program because uh, the TV critic for Fresh Air, David Biancooli, had a very interesting 10-minute analysis of how the Kennedy assassination ushered in the age of television, uh, that uh, some 97% of Americans had watched some coverage of the uh, the events, the funeral, the salute, the horseless carriage. And even some Americans amazingly saw Lee Harvey Oswald killed live on television, uh, as NBC, in fact, was the only one covering the um, uh, transfer of Oswald at that time live. <laughs> well, uh, Turner Classic Movies had some interesting programming that I'll mention in just a second, but first as a quick follow-up to the I.F. Stone uh, aspect there. Uh, a young journalist trying to impress uh, Izzy Stone once said, oh, you know, I got a job working for the Washington Post. You know, I'm really happy. It's a great paper. And uh, Stone, critical of all major newspapers, uh, although he voraciously read them every day, yes, uh, said, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, it's, that's a good paper. You never know on what page you're going to find a first-page story. Uh, because, of course, the big stories are not the ones on the front page. The big stories are the ones that are still hidden, still in their formative stages, and those are A20. You know, those are buried in the back, and it's usually those last couple of paragraphs where the glaring omissions, that's where a lot of his information in the hidden history of the Korean War comes from, is simply items uh, in the uh, tail end of uh, back page news items 
uh, from the late 40s and early 50s, sort of pointing the way to how the Korean War uh, developed the way it did. But the night before, so this would have been uh, November 21st, uh, the evening before the uh, anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, TCM showed uh, uh, a number of Kennedy-related films, uh, including the Cliff Robertson PT-109 biopic. And, mm-hmm. of course, Stone alludes to the charismatic nature, the, the good-looking, you know, uh, the, the Prince Charming aspect of uh, Kennedy. But uh, they showed another one four days in November that covered from the assassination to the funeral. Um, and that, of course, uh, was the, you know, the bulk of the, the feature program. But just before that, they showed a short piece, a half-hour piece that had been a documentary uh, ostensibly filmed for television uh, in which uh, Bobby Kennedy and uh, John Kennedy were working in the office uh, drafting a speech that Kennedy was going to deliver on civil rights. And Governor Wallace had been invited to the White House where he was going to be, you know, sort of had a little finger wagging section. Right. Here's why you're going to let these people go to college. Um, And so this uh, was pretty incredible to watch because uh, the cameras were just ever present in the Oval Office for about a week as they uh, worked on these things. And what you saw were the edited highlights of it. But this is the work that uh, Kennedy had done at the White House just before the Dallas trip. Yeah, and it's interesting because 1963, as as, uh, Dalek pointed out, is when Kennedy finally came around on civil rights. He certainly was not a crusader on the issue. Uh, Somewhat cautious. uh, Very cautious. And there are even, I think, some revisionist histories coming out now claiming that he was actually a conservative. uh, I I don't think he was a conservative. (laughs) Well, Pat Robertson. I think he was a cautious uh, liberal. Yeah, Pat Robertson. He was a Cold War liberal, no question about that, at some level. But I remember even uh, last year when they uh, did the 50th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis, mm. and there, of course, is an essay in uh, this uh, I.F. Stone book about the Cuban Missile Crisis. One of the fascinating revelations was at one point in the so-called CENTCOM room or whatever they call it, the M- MACV, uh, you know, the, the command structure of the American government, Everybody was in favor of of starting the war, except one person, John F. Kennedy. And John F. Kennedy, while certainly a flawed person, and we need to be careful about the revisionism regarding him, the sex life and this sort of perpetual scandal uh, mongering regarding his uh, personal life, uh, obviously... (laughs) What went on in their marriage is kind of between them. Uh, he might have gone a little overboard there <laughs> for a, a variety of reasons. But there might have been some other things uh, that we don't know about. One of the fascinating revelations in Philip Sheenon's book that I have not read, but I have heard him interviewed. He was the other participant in this Fresh Air a trio of David Biancooley and uh, Robert Dalek. He has a new book out about his analysis of the investigation in which he pretty much blatantly says the CIA and FBI lied to the Warren Commission, covered a lot of stuff up, and Earl Warren participated in the cover-up too. Earl Warren loved John Kennedy like a son, as uh, uh, Philip Sheenon reported, Um, and he was heartbroken. He's the only one that interviewed Jackie Kennedy. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, she was supposed to be a commission witness. He's the one. The, and that's sealed. Yeah. Her testimony is sealed, sealed and, uh, for another 50 years. Unbelievable. It's something like 2067. Yeah. So Norman Mailer's conclusion that this is going to remain one of the great mysteries of uh, American history rings true. The investigation was botched repeatedly by the FBI and the CIA. They were covering up for the fact that they had, in fact, had been monitoring Oswald's movements for quite some time. I have never subscribed to the theory that Oswald was simply an innocent patsy that was sort of plucked out of nowhere. Right. Uh, he was set up in some sort of way, and I do believe he fired bullets at the president. But I think there were clearly other participants in this ghastly affair. And I do think it's very interesting to look at the pictures of the presidents before John F. Kennedy and compare what John F. Kennedy looked like compared to them. Our founding fathers had a kind of Romanesque uh, appearance. Uh, many of them were patriarchal. Well, patriarchal, and many of them were incredibly enlightened people. They believed in the European Enlightenment. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was certainly one of our great intellects, and Kennedy even remarked uh, that he had more intellectual power than all the other presidents combined, and that he had contributed to the life. Jefferson, that yeah. is, yeah. And Kennedy did great things. We, we need to remember that this is a man who said, we're going to land on the moon. It happened. He created the Peace Corps. Uh, and it's interesting because the Peace Corps was created on a visit here uh, to Ann Arbor, Michigan, yep. on the steps of the Union. He was asking, ask not what you can, you know, what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He inspired idealism. And the, and the sort of the nexus of the Peace Corps, as Dalek pointed out, was essentially Kennedy listening to graduate students here at the University of Michigan about what their hopes and aspirations were, and that he had the creative vision to create, for instance, uh, promotion of the arts. Franklin Roosevelt may have been one of the only other presidents that even contemplated such a thing, that federal money should be spent promoting the arts and promoting great artists for their contributions. We, we have the Kennedy Senate Center in Washington to this day. Um, the Medal of Freedom was celebrated as a 50th anniversary. So uh, Kennedy looked so different from the rest of the presidents. There was that kind of weird period in the late 19th century where all of the presidents either had scraggly long beards or lamb chops or right. whatever. <laughs> Lots of facial hair. Well, the uh, And then we had kind of balding older men right. with glasses. And you think about Barack Obama and how different he looks. You know, Nixon and, 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 and Johnson kind of went back to the old school. But Reagan, Bush, the two Bushes and Clinton are more in the Kennedy tradition. They've got hair. They look a little younger. Well, Reagan, of course, it was a lot of pancake makeup. But uh, <laughs> well, as, uh, Lenny, he still had his hair. Lenny Bruce opined in the early stages of the Kennedy administration, you know, how novel it was to see a president who was a father not a grandfather. Yeah. Um, with a, an actual family, you know, small children uh, in the White House. And that uh, that, too, is sort of a, a telling representative every man sort of aspect, despite the fact that he's a scion of uh, sort of nouveau riche, uh, early 20th century money. Um, 
that uh, he represents the baby boom generation at that level. Uh, the, that was the generation that fought the war. They had come into their own at that you know particular mm-hmm. moment in American history, and that uh, it really did seem very much as though a page had been turned in American history and cultural history. Um, you know, people don't wear hats anymore. Men, right uh, after the Kennedy administration, and that's because sort of he a, didn't like them. a minor cultural thing. In fact, it was funny in one of the uh, scenes from that uh, Four Days in November film. Uh, you see Kennedy traveling around Texas, you know, Houston to Austin, wherever. And there's a scene where he's being presented with a, a hat and cowboy boots, and they're sort of goading him to put the hat on. He was like, "Well, you." I'll wear this back in Washington. Right. And he sort of tactfully puts it off to the side, and there's polite laughter. But I suppose. When I I play cowboy and Indians with JJ and Caroline. Right. (laughs) But. uh, Yeah, because there was something about the fact that he had young children, too, um, running around the White House that made him so attractive. And yes, you can overstate that television was created uh, by this event. Uh, you can even argue, I think, that the 60s started with this event in in some ways because there was this interesting uh, torch <laughs> that was um, ex- extinguished in Dallas. Um, Earl Warren, for the record, by the way, is the only one that saw the autopsy photos. Uh, he called them so gruesome that he said, no, we're not going to show these. Uh, and, and we're not going to publish these in the uh, Warren Commission. Uh, and these autopsy photos were subsequently, in my opinion, faked. Uh, and there's been some, there's clearly been some cover-ups involving the autopsy photos. Uh, once um, people found out that um, that this evidence could be man- manipulated in terms of reconstructing the assassination. Uh, of course, uh, Dalek pointed out that there have been 40,000 books written about the presidency of John F. Kennedy and uh, the assassination. So this is a, a continuing subject, and it's going to be interesting to see how the next 50 years develop. Uh, remember that the Warren Commission documents, quote-unquote, and, and Sheenon reconstructed his investigation by interviewing some of the remaining Warren Commission staffers who are still alive, and how the substance of the of the cover-up regarding the evidence uh, did work. Clearly, the picture of Oswald in the Mexican embassy is fake. <laughs> it's not Lee Harvey Oswald. And clearly, in a very important witness who's still alive that Oswald apparently met uh, while seeking a visa, allegedly at the Cuban uh, consulate in Mexico City, is still alive, Sylvia Duran Duran. Um, she was not interviewed. Uh, many people were not interviewed. I also thought one of the fascinating other eyewitnesses uh, that uh, recalled his memories of that fateful day was uh, Robert McNeil, who was working for NBC News. And uh, he noted that he saw a lot of people run up the grassy knoll. He also recounted what he remembered the shots sounding like. He said he heard a bang, and then he heard a bang, bang. And if his recollection is factually correct, there were two assassins. uh, Because uh, the Warren Commission established quite early 
and I brought in my copy of Inquest uh, by uh, Edward J. Epstein. Uh, this was one of the early credible critiques of the investigation by the Warren Commission that was first published in uh, June of 1966. This I interestingly started out as a master's thesis. <laughs> uh, Edward J. Epstein, uh, I believe, was was attending Cornell at the time. This eventually became a bestseller, and he wrote some other books regarding the uh, national security state. He's got an interesting book from the 1970s called Deception that was about the whole uh, debate within the CIA and the National Security Agency, uh, FBI, etc., about the bona fides of the defection of Nosenko mm. and Galitsyn, which was played an interesting role uh, in the Kennedy assassination uh, from the Soviet angle. Earl Warren was reluctant to take the job of head of this commission because uh, he argued with... Uh, <clears throat> Lyndon Johnson, that it was improper for the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court to go into this realm of <laughs> service, so to speak, that mm -hmm. it was a separation of powers problem. But Johnson convinced him that nuclear war was at stake <laughs> and convinced him that 40 million people could die. Uh, of course, there was an early memo from acting attorney general since Robert Kennedy essentially resigned from that point on Nixon uh, Nicholas Katzenbach that uh, was written two days after the assassination in which he blatantly states the public must be convinced that Lee Harvey Oswald acted mm. alone and this of course was the operative concept of uh, the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover the reason that inquest, I think, is such an important uh, early critique of the uh, Warren Commission are some of the factual questions that um, Edward J. Epstein raises in particularly Chapter 3 regarding the timing of Oswald's Malika Kirkarno and the autopsy uh, results. Clearly, the autopsy was was not well well performed and clearly there were some cover-ups regarding the autopsy but i want to well, destruction of notes and so forth destruction so. of notes burning notes um the warren commission for the record accepted an undated autopsy report however this undated autopsy report conflicts with fbi reports uh that demonstrate beyond a shadow of a doubt that the back wound that kennedy suffered uh, did not exit the body, thus pretty much negating the single bullet theory. Mm -hmm. That's the end of that story, in my opinion. Uh, Edward Epstein writes, and he notes that Arlen Specter was the lawyer that came up with the single bullet theory. Uh, at one point in May of '64, uh, he wanted to re he he went to Dallas and reconstructed the so-called evidence based on the Zabruder film, which is another unbelievable irony of the Kennedy assassination that the actual assassination was filmed by a a home I think he was a tailor dentist or tailor or something, something like, like that, that. even more bizarre was that Life magazine actually 
purchased it from him. Yeah. And after the FBI had made copies of it. The CIA allegedly, the na- National Photographic. But the FBI, the, uh, the Life had a copy owned that the night. original. Yeah. Uh, which the Zapruder family later bought back. It's remarkable that uh, right. it just didn't become some sort of, well, this is now a piece of evidence. Like, And of course, that original is used in the Oliver Stone movie, which is why the Oliver Stone movie is still an unbelievable work of art, uh, though I think it's mislabeled. I don't think it's JFK. I think it's basically the story of Jim Garrison. Mm who subsequently opened up an investigation in New Orleans regarding Oswald's movements uh, in the summer of 63, etc. But uh, Epstein writes, there are a number of problems inherent in the explanation that uh, that Spector gave out, claiming that the FBI's uh, report had, quote, gone to press. He said, first of all, there exists Secret Service testimony that one FBI agent... Spectre also claimed that uh, FBI agents rushed out of the room and telephoned the result to their Maryland field office. Meanwhile, according to Spectre, the doctor found the path, but at the same time, the agents submitted their reports and the FBI summary had, quote, gone to press. There are a number of problems with this. First of all, there exists Secret Service testimony that one FBI agent remained in the room at all time. Second, two Secret Service agents who were also in the room throughout the autopsy indicated in their testimony that no path was found through the body. Third, the December 9th FBI summary could not possibly have gone to press until at least 11 days after the autopsy. Finally, Spectre's story in no way explains why the FBI supplemental report dated January 13th also states that the autopsy revealed that the bullet penetrated to a depth of less than a finger length. This is the back wound that people want to call a neck wound. And I've always jokingly said John F. Kennedy is the only human being in the history of human civilization that has a neck below his shoulders. Nonsense. Well, that's about it uh, for time uh, this week on Gray Matters. Thanks to Andrew for engineering. Do stay tuned. Uh, Yazoo City Calling is coming up next right here on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor with the Down Home Blues. Allen Ginsberg here announcing that this is station WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, your Dharmic free speech station. Good evening and welcome to Yazoo City Calling on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. This is our weekly dedication to early American blues music, broadcasting to you live every Monday from 7 to 8 p.m. on 88.3 megahertz since 1988. My name is Weston Hughes, and I am your host this week. If you'd like to make a request, you can call 734-763-3500, and today's broadcast is dedicated to recordings made before the Second World War, so before 1942, so please bear that in mind. We begin this week's program with a recording made in the year 1930 by Gip Fiddle Jim, otherwise known as Mr. Kokomo Arnold. This is one of the greatest slide guitar masterpieces captured on uh, any phonograph record, or any uh, recording ever, I should say. Let's listen to Paddlin' Madeline Blues, recorded in 1930. (laughs) 